Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we are returning to Trump world this week with the one, the only, Gabriel Sherman, who is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, a very, very special one. He covers the White House, politics, Rudy Giuliani, Donald, boring Trump. He's not boring, he's just annoying. Uh, And uh, all things media related, and I'm very, very excited to welcome him back to the show. Gabe, are you there? I am here. Where are you right now? Are you reporting live from Donald Trump's um, underwear drawer? Where Where are you? <laughs> that, that's an image I'm going to try to banish from my mind. Um, I am in uh, live from uh, Vanity Fair's offices on the uh, 41st floor of One World Trade Center in sunny New in sunny New York. Well, we we, we flipped the weather. So okay, I'm going to jump right in. I think it's what are we on like day 9,642 of the government shutdown. Um, and it doesn't seem to be coming anywhere even close to a resolution. We have, I have a ton of re- questions about a big story you broke this week, but I, I just want to jump into the, to the shutdown. What are you hearing? What's going to happen? Is, how is this going to end? Because it doesn't seem like Pelosi is going to back down and it doesn't seem like Trump is. You know, that's that's the question everyone is asking, including people inside the West Wing. Um, You know, the reality is, is that um, when Trump declared on TV uh, weeks ago during his uh, televised uh, press uh, event with uh, Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, that he'd be proud to own the shutdown, that was like the classic off the cuff Trump remark. There was no strategic sort of plan behind that. Uh, and now they're uh, in the situation where they're in the shutdown. They went. Trump went into it with no blueprint for how to get out of it, and he's digging in. Both sides are digging in. Um, obviously, the the political uh, landscape is more favorable to the Democrats. You know, polls show most more people are blaming Trump for it. Uh, not surprisingly, because he said he'd be proud to own it. Um, so you know. You know, logically, the only way this ends is if Trump somehow uh, gives something uh, off of his uh, demand for, you know, $5.7 billion for the wall. Um, but, you know, until, I guess, Republicans feel enough pain, and I, you know, I, I sort of think the, the key to all of this um, is Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, he stayed on the sidelines uh, for now. We've had a couple of Republican senators break Uh, with Trump and say it's time to end the shutdown. I think if you get 10 plus Republicans in the Senate saying this is, you know, insanity, uh, you're going to have McConnell then bring uh, a vote to the to the floor. And then you're going to basically have Trump being forced to veto uh, a Republican passed uh, bill in the Senate. So, you know, I think that's where this is going, uh, unless Trump comes to his senses, which is, you know, uh, Trump and his senses is not likely. But (laughs) that that's my sort of read of the landscape. 
Okay, but but one of the problems is McConnell is from a state that doesn't probably. I mean, from the just the numbers I've looked at, doesn't have a lot of um, government workers. It, this is not going to affect. He's you know he's up for re-election. It's a it's going to be a tight one, uh, no matter which way you slice it. There, there's not really any incentive uh, for McConnell to do this. I mean, there would be the the moral incentive of the fact that 800,000 people who work for the United States government are not getting paid, but Mitch McConnell's not that kind of person. What, what, what is gonna, what's the thing that actually makes him want to do this? Is it just that his, his colleagues are going to be like, enough's enough? Yeah, McConnell- I mean, that's, 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 that's the great question. You know, I think right now we have three Republicans, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Cory Gardner of Colorado, who have um, basically broken. I think if you get you know, 10 plus Republicans flipping, there's going to be pressure on McConnell to do something. But, you know, as you point out, the the sort of short term political calculus for McConnell is to do nothing. And this gets to the heart of the matter, whether we're talking about the shutdown or the Russia investigation, is that the Republican base at this point is, you know, basically a personality cult of Donald Trump. You know, even with all of this insanity. He uh, has, you know, something like, you know, 85 to 90 percent approval ratings amongst Republicans. You know, w- uh, several months ago, they did a poll and Trump had the second highest approval rating of any Republican in the modern era, second to um, George W. Bush, like in the immediate uh, wake of 9-11. So, you know, w- the the party, the base of the party, the people who actually vote in primaries are, you know, 100 percent still in lockstep with Trump. And so he's got to, you know, he's got the the party by the balls. And I don't I don't see, you know, unless the Trump base somehow turns on him, which after all of this, they haven't. I don't see why they would now. That's why you have, you know, Republicans, even ones who in private say Trump's a maniac, aren't doing anything to to uh, constrain him. So the, the the right now we've had one um, uh, one paycheck that the government employees have missed. It seems like once we get, it seems like this is probably going to go for another couple of weeks until the other paycheck is supposed to go out and doesn't show up before all hell breaks loose. Is that is that probably a good assumption? Yeah, and you know, but I think you're going to see things even you know before that. You know, at what point does like the Chamber of Commerce and like Country Club Republicans? Who you know are seeing their uh, their you know middle manager employees stuck in TSA security lines and you know businesses basically grind to a halt because the airports are in disarray. I mean, so far um, it's it's been limited, but we're hearing reports of you know hour plus waits to get through security. And I know from my reporting that Larry Kudlow, Trump's top economic advisor, has said privately inside the White House that you know the longer the shutdown goes on, you're going to see real negative economic uh, consequences. So um, that's that's another sort of pressure point is just the, the disarray leading to, you know, a complete slowdown of our economy, which already, as we've seen with the stock sell-off, has, you know, been tested. So... Well, I hope that for the sake, I mean, I know people that both that work in government and that have been affected by it that don't work in government. And it's, um, you know, if it, it, it's it's terrible what's happening. I, I, I mean, I have, my own little like tiny uh, world, I've been affected by it. I have like a, a tax uh, form that I need um, to have mailed out by the IRS and I can't get anyone on the phone. And so, um, you know, I'm just basically just in a holding pattern. And and obviously that's, you know, in terms of the pain people are feeling, you know, that's nothing. But it just shows you that it's crazy that because of this political fight, you know, we can't even just, you know, carry on the business of, of, of running this country. Um, all right. So let's move on to uh, one of my favorite uh, Gollum-like villains, Rudy Giuliani. So you had a story this week um, in Vanity Fair about Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is telling people that he's kind of a little fed up uh, with uh, Trump world um, and that he expects the Mueller investigation to come to a close in the next couple of weeks. Give us a little, a little more uh, explanation about what's going on there. Yeah, you know, this this story grew out of uh, reporting I've been doing over the last few weeks. I I wrote a piece um, last week uh, on the subject as well. 
um, which really talked about the kind of difference between what Rudy Giuliani is saying in public versus what he's saying in private. And in private, as I reported um, uh, last week, you know, he's been telling uh, associates that he expects the the first installment of the Mueller report to be, quote, horrific for Trump. Mueller's going to put, you know, everything that's damaging they've uncovered in there. And then uh, this week, uh, I wrote a piece that said that uh, Giuliani is expecting uh, the uh, obstruction of justice installment of uh, the Mueller investigation to be delivered to the Justice Department within weeks. Um, now, we've heard Giuliani say this before, you know, during the midterms, he said it would be done by uh, uh, Labor Day. It wasn't. But, you know, judging by, you know, Giuliani's level of concern in, in conversations with uh, with his friends and allies, um, clearly they, you know, have know something or he has a sense of, of Mueller's timing now that in a way that he hasn't in the past. And, you know, last night he gave a remarkable interview to Chris Cuomo on CNN in which he basically walked back all of their previous denials of no collusion. And Giuliani said, well, there may have been collusion, but it just wasn't Donald Trump. It could have been other people. He said, I can't guarantee it wasn't other people in the campaign, which, you know, if we just stop for a second, you know, Trump has been tweeting um, since day one, all caps, no collusion. And now now their answer is, well, there might be collusion. I just didn't know about it. I mean, that just shows you the level of um, anxiety and and terror that is in uh, a large part of Trump's uh, orbit about really what Mueller uh, is going to uh, uncover, probably or, or you know likely in the uh, very near future. Well, it's it's so fascinating because Giuliani has you know from the get go been um, a little bit contentious. I mean, when he first came out uh, defending Trump, he made a a bunch of little silly errors, um, saying things that were incorrect or he shouldn't have said, um, and it. And it, what's difficult to understand, and I'd love to hear your explanation for us, is are, are the things that he's saying, are they approved by Trump? Or is, is it just Giuliani being senile, this guy who can't even put AirPods in his ears properly, uh, um, just kind of speaking off the cuff? Yeah, it's it's the latter. You know, Giuliani is, uh, you know, people who worked on the Trump campaign back in 2016, you know, told me how this was, you know, not the same Giuliani who you know, became America's mayor after 9-11. I mean, he's completely lost his mind, uh, forgetful, you know, kind of incoherent in a lot of the things he would say. And, you know, we've seen that same version on on television. Um, and so, you know, one, uh, there's been a lot of tension between Trump and Giuliani. You know, it's, it's kind of, um, uh, I think, reflective of the fact that Trump couldn't get really any other real lawyer to defend him. He had to turn to this guy that, you know, for the first year of the administration, Trump and Giuliani barely talked. You know, Giuliani famously wanted to be Secretary of State. Um, and, you know, also the Attorney General job was in the mix. He was offered neither. And so they basically didn't speak. And there was a lot of residual resentment between the two men. Um, uh, a Trump advisor told me a hilarious story about how during the campaign, when they would get off Trump's uh, jet at the uh, campaign rallies, they would descend the stairs and Trump would pose for for pictures with supporters. And he'd look over and he'd see Rudy doing selfies with fans. And Trump would say to people like, what the hell? Like, this guy is shouldn't be getting his picture taken. You know, in Trump world, <laughs> you can't, there can't be any other star but Trump himself. So, you know, Rudy came to it with his own profile. Um, so there's been some competition between the two. Um, and I, you know, I have to do some more reporting when we when we get off um, this podcast. But I have to imagine that Trump is, um, you know, blowing up angry at Rudy Giuliani seeding uh, the central argument of his defense over the past year. The other thing that you you pointed out uh, in your story, Axios has also reported um, that uh, the the acting chief of staff uh, Mick Mulvaney, um, when they were negotiating. The slowdown. Uh, this is another person that Trump, you know, once loved and now uh, said to him, uh, "You just fucked it all up, Mick." Is it these people that surround Trump? Do they do they look at him and think like, "Okay, this is my uh, my ability to get attention. This is my ability to, to have more power." And and then they sh- he shits on them, and they. St- I, I just don't understand the dynamic of people like Giuliani who gets shit on and Mulvaney and all these people, but and yet they still want to be closer to him. 
Well, let's let's you know we can break those two examples down. You know, in the case of uh, Giuliani, uh, he's relevant in a way that he wasn't 12 months ago, and he's been there's been reporting about how he's been traveling around to you know all of these shady regimes, raising you know doing consulting deals, and you know basically um, trading off of his uh, celebrity, his newfound celebrity being Trump's lawyer. So you know there's a business reason why Giuliani would would um, or I guess I say a financial reason why he would subject himself to the abuse from Trump. In Mulvaney's case, you know he uh, he is you know a, a sort of a right classic right wing Ayn Rand Republican, you know, he ran the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. You know, for him, that was a a a, a way to achieve his ideological aims of slashing the government and um, and sort of applying uh, right wing dogma to policy. So he got a lot out of that. With the chief of staff job, you know, it's a little different. You know, he. Um, he was the last choice. Again, as I've reported, he was Jared Kushner's choice after Nick Ayers, uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff, pulled his name out of the running. And so they turned to Mulvaney, and he has the acting chief of ta- staff title. And as he's told uh, friends and associates that I've I've heard about in my reporting, you know, he's keeping that acting chief of staff title so that at any point he can basically pull the ripcord and get out of there. And it doesn't really look as bad as it would be as if he was Trump's real chief of staff, uh, who would be the, I guess, the the fourth chief of staff um, to to leave. Um, and, you know, there's been reporting uh, in The Times about how Mulvaney is still actively looking to become the president of the University of South Carolina. So, you know, this is a, this is a guy who is there for ideological reasons to try to shrink the government and is already has half a foot out the door. It's so it, it's it's literally you couldn't make it more dramatic if you if you tried yeah, um, I had okay. a uh, I had a a friend in Hollywood uh, text me uh, this morning after just the last twenty four hours of headlines and said, you know, if you wrote all of this stuff into a script, uh, uh, the you know the producers <laughs> the producers would come back with notes saying this is you know too much unless you're writing farce, take it all out. So you know this is an example where just the the reality is stranger than e- even people in Hollywood could invent. Yeah, it's it's um, and it doesn't seem to ever want to stop. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So if you're like me, the list of books that you want to read and those that people suggest you should read is a never ending black hole. And it is always expanding. I have so many books piling up on my bedside table that I have never gotten to. You simply just don't have enough time to read them all. Well, our sponsor this week, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so you can read or listen to them in just under 15 minutes, all on your phone. With Blinkist, you will expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you don't just have to read them, you can listen to them too. I like to listen to Blinkist when I'm in the car, you know, sitting in traffic, driving around, but I've also been using it more in those moments where I'd normally pull out my phone and waste 15 minutes on social networks. Instead, I open Blinkist and I read a book in just 15 minutes. The Blinkist library is massive and incredible. There's everything from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow to The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. It's just a massive, incredible list of books. Lately, I've been reading a new book on AI superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee, and I just this morning started a new book called Napoleon's Buttons, which I can't wait to dive into uh, after I finish this podcast. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from their best-of lists, so you can always find new, powerful ideas in made-for-mobile content. There are 5 million people using Blinkist, and every single person I know who uses it absolutely loves it. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has offered a special, special offer for you Hive listeners. All you need to do is go to Blinkist.com Hive to start a free seven-day trial. Once again, go to Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Hive. You know how to spell that part. To start a free seven-day trial, Blinkist.com slash Hive. Once again, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Hive. Okay, so um, one person that we, 
we all see in the headlines every single solitary day, and people seem to love or hate her, but they love to talk about her, is um, Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. Um, From my she, district. I live in, uh, in Queens, and she oh, is uh, nice. the, very, the very representative good. of my district, yes. Um, have, you, have you seen her uh, wandering the streets? Uh, I have. Uh, I saw her at a campaign rally um, uh, shortly after she... Uh, had defeated um, Joe Crowley. Um, so, you know, she was, this was before her national celebrity had blown up. Um, so she, she, so she, speaking of national celebrity, she is without question now probably one of the most famous uh, uh, people in government besides Trump and Pelosi. You know, I mean, you don't necessarily know all the other uh, House members' names, uh, if any, and and yet everyone knows her. And one thing I find so fascinating is I, I go to Drudge Report a lot just to kind of see what both sides of the lunatic asylum are talking about, and she is always on the top of the page. There's always two, three, four articles there, no matter which conservative website you go to, they're always talking about her, and the same on the left. What is, if, do you know anything about how Trump feels about her and the fact that she's getting all this attention and can't seem to be you know, she's almost got like a Teflon Don thing where it, nothing negative sticks, even though there isn't really anything negative about her. You know, that's a great question. Um, I, I haven't heard specifically uh, about, um, you know, what he how he views her as a political opponent. You know, I think in the sh- right now his focus is on Pelosi because she has actual power uh, over him. You know, AOC has, you know, media power um, and, you know, the power to shape the Democratic uh, Party's, you know, policy agenda. But in terms of actually Donald Trump's um, day-to-day, you know, existence, um, she's, I don't think, you know, he doesn't see her as an immediate threat. But that is a great question just about how she's, you know, I I would love to know more about his, the way he thinks of her as, you know, kind of a media adversary and the way she's been able to commandeer uh, the news cycle. Because as Trump, as we know, Anything that takes the news cycle away from Trump is, is you know, something that is going to, you know, draw his ire. Do you think that um, uh, that she has a chance? I mean, she's 29 now, so it's at least six years away. But do you think this is someone that is going to take the Nancy Pelosi path of, of just staying at the highest points of government um, within the in, in Congress? Or do you think that there's a world in which we see uh, AOC running for, for uh, president? Um, you know, I, it's it's hard to see her grinding it out, um, you know, for, you know, the next 25 years in in Congress, um, even if she gets, you know, committee chairmanships or, you know, party leadership. You know, this is she's clearly someone that wants to have, you know, direct, um, you know, sort of executive say over um uh, both the party and also, you know, the, the national agenda. So, you know, clearly she's someone who it would be entirely logical has presidential ambitions. But, you know, I think predicting what we, I can't even predict what's going to happen in the news cycle, you know, <laughs> six, six minutes from now, let alone six years from now. So, um, you know, we never heard of AOC as of, you know, last summer. So it, I think the real test will be, you know, once she, you know, she's sworn in, she's now a, a rep, you know, member of the United States House of um, Representatives. I think, you know, whether she can actually, you know, pass legislation or, or move the party in her direction, um, then, you know, we'll sort of see what kind of staying power she has. I think, you know, kind of the the obsession with her biography and her age and her sort of charisma and her, her media uh, prowess, I think is going to, you know, wear off, you know, the 60 Minutes interview she did was, you know, again, so, sort of so focused on on her story and, and growing up in the Bronx and, you know, whether she thinks Donald Trump is a racist or not. I, you know, I think whether she can actually get the Democratic Party to embrace, you know, 70 percent top marginal tax rates, you know, that's where we'll see her having, you know, a, a real political future. It's a, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it, she is without question uh, whether she ends up you know, running or not um, years from now, um, she is having a massive impact on the party. But the the thing that I find so fascinating, what you just said is, you know, last summer, no one had ever heard of her. And I think that when you kind of look at the ability for someone to become a presidential candidate in the same way Trump went from, you know, descending his elevator with paid actors, um, the Trump Tower to becoming president of the United States, it, you know, anything is possible these days as far as... 
you know, who's you know, one thing up. that I've been thinking a lot about is going into this, you know, the 2020 um, election in the, in the Democratic primary is, you know, if you look at the rise of AOC, you know, one of the consequences of that is it really calls into question, you know, what is the Democratic Party? Because, you know, for, you know, really since Bill Clinton in the early 90s, it's been this um, coalition of, um, you know, social liberals and Wall Street. And, um, you know, I, I think you really see that breaking down. I mean, even Barack Obama, for all of his, you know, progressive, um, uh, you know, cred, you know, he really kind of aligned himself with the establishment and the sort of center left of the Democratic Party, you know, bringing in people like Steve Ratner um, uh, and Tim Geithner and others. So, um, you know, AOC clearly um, is trying to move the party away from that, uh, as did Bernie Sanders. But, you know, if if that's the case, you know, where do, you know, Jamie Dimon and, and other sort of centrist Democrats go? Uh, I mean, you know, they're clearly not going to vote for Trump. But yeah. if you know, if the Democratic uh, candidate for president wants to have you know top you know incomes over five or ten million dollars taxed at seventy plus percent, um, I don't. I mean, it's just I think we're in the sort of a fundamental realigning of um, of American politics, and you know, does it create space for a third party or another billionaire to run in the middle? I mean, I don't I don't know, but I think that's what I'm. I find so fascinating in the civil war that's going on right now in the Democratic Party is the, the sort of the old coalition that Hillary and, and Obama and Bill Clinton um, ran on is completely breaking down. Well, it's also very similar to the civil war that went on in, you know, uh, in 2015 and 2016 uh, leading up to, to the election. And you had for the Republican Party. Um, yeah. You, you had a party that. I remember reading articles and uh, even stuff you'd written and uh, all over the place about how the Republican Party was was um, essentially rudderless and no one knew which direction it was supposed to go and who it was supposed to appeal to. And I think Trump seized on that. And it seems like that this, for 2020, the same thing is going to be true for the Democratic Party. And who knows how many election cycles it will take to play out before they actually do find a, a, a course. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, okay, so one thing that I, I am trying to understand is this week Nancy Pelosi uh, sent a letter to the president uh, saying that he should probably delay his uh, State of the Union address, which was essentially not a probably, but it was an I'm going to delay it. She has a tremendous amount of power right now. Um, as, as there's a great quote in, uh, in a Washington Post article, she wields the knife and can undercut Trump uh, no matter where she wants to and how she wants to. Can you explain a little bit more about how Pelosi can really fuck with Trump and what things that she can do and that she will do and things that he may be able to do in response? Well, let's just, you know, um, let's just take the, you know, start with the State of the Union uh, example. You know, both sides knew or know that Trump wants to use the State of the Union address to, again, make another primetime pitch to build his wall. Um, as I reported yesterday, you know, Trump has no sort of real incentive to end the shutdown before the State of the Union so that he could use that TV time to sell his wall. And Pelosi, you know, sm smart enough to know that, um, you know, she has the power because the you know, she is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and constitutionally, the State of the Union is uh, is an event that is you know the president is invited to address both houses of Congress by the Speaker. Um, so she has that power to to essentially uninvite him or delay the State of the Union uh, constitutionally. You know, second, you know, she is now presiding over uh, a Democratic caucus that is you know running all of these committees and. Um, you know, it's going to basically plunge the White House into subpoena hell for the next you know year and a half, um, and she has the power just to chip away and tie up um, the White House in one committee hearing after another. Um, I think, but the you know the one thing I think is is not getting enough attention is the degree to which she has also proven to be such an effective adversary. Um, on uh, sort of as a communicator. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, I'll be the first to admit, I'm surprised about that. You know, going into her speakership, I was thinking that, you know, Democratic Party was going to repeat all the mistakes of 2016 and appoint, um, you know, kind of an out of touch of, you know, uh, you know, sort of a veteran of the party who was not uh, sort of a telegenic or 
um, authentic communicator the way Trump is. And in fact, Pelosi has been able to kind of, you know, uh, whatever fault she had in kind of being aloof or a San Francisco liberal, you know, she's been able to, you know, parry Trump and sort of paint him as ill-informed and non-serious and, um, and throwing a temper tantrum and she's the grown-up in the room. And so I think that, you know, sort of her power as, as you know, the third most powerful person in government to command the news cycle is uh, something that Trump hasn't had to contend with for the last, you know, since, you know, since 2016. Um, so I've, I've been very impressed with her power just as a communicator. Uh, if you look at the way she was in his uh, Oval Office sit down with, uh, with Schumer, she said, we're going to have, you know, a fact-based discussion, not, you know, not basically Trump's racist and emotional appeals to build a wall. So um, both, you know, her ability to, to tie him up in, in investigations and her ability to just, you know, uh, wage uh, uh, rhetorical warfare on him is, is, is a new, um, this is a new chapter of the Trump presidency. And so far, I mean, I think no matter what your politics are, you would say that she's winning. It's, no, you're completely right. It, she's been, it, 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 she's almost plays this kind of maternal uh, supervisor towards him, but not in a, like, I care about you, more in like a, you're being a little brat and I'm not going to put up with this. And, yeah. um, and he, he's, he, for whatever reason, because he knows how to go go toe to toe with anyone, he he seems to be failing when it comes to Pelosi. So it'll be interesting to see how he responds. So just the second part of that question: while she's doing all these things, you know, uh, tying them up with subpoena power, uh, telling him he can't come to the State of the Union, that he's you know grounded, um, uh, he can't play with his toys. What is it that Trump can do to her? Uh, can he just other than just tweet? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> this, this is, uh, you know, hopefully this is the strength of the American political system. It's, they're co-equal branches of government. So, you know, he obviously has the bully pul- pulpit of the presidency to, to attack her. Um, you know, he can, uh, he can veto her legislation, you know, to the degree to which, you know, the Senate would ever, you know, agree the McConnell run Senate would ever, you know, send a bill, uh, that comes out of Pelosi's house to the to the White House, which I you know sort of unlikely. Although we did see it with criminal justice reform. Um, um, yeah, I mean he doesn't have the problem is he doesn't have a lot of uh, actual leverage over her other than you know his platform, and you know as we were just talking about, she's been um, more than uh, up to the task of of um, you know challenging him. Um, in the communications war. So this is, you know, Trump seems kind of lost and rudderless. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to engage with her because she has real political power. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. The New Yorker represents some of the best writing in America today, and the New Yorker also holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, the New Yorker covers a full range of topics from politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, theater, food, humor, you name it. And of course, my personal favorite, which I go to every single day to check out, the cartoons. People who write for The New Yorker are so eloquent and they write so beautifully and they cover stories that you would never in a million years actually think about reading about, but they are so in-depth and incredible, like the diminishing supply of sand and hunting down heirloom beans, uh, stories about paper jams and fault lines and stink bugs, just incredible stuff. They have some of the the greatest writers around today, from Hilton Owls, the theater critic, Ronan Farrow, of course, we all know, who took down Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves with his Pulitzer Prize-winning writing. I tend to go to The New Yorker several times a day to kind of read all the different things they're writing about. Just today, I read an amazing article, which I had no idea existed, about uh, the ambulance driver shortage in rural America. Uh, There was another great story about uh, socialism and how what it has to do with sex. Uh, one of my favorite writers, John Cassidy, talking about Theresa May and the government shutdown uh, in England with Brexit and all the chaos that's going on there. It's just a fantastic, fantastic magazine and news online outlet uh, that you can just spend hours reading all different kinds of things. The New Yorker is going to offer Hive listeners a very special treat this week. In fact, it is one that you will not want to miss up. 
you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. That is less than the price of one of those fancy, bespoke, silly coffees that we all spend all our money on. Plus, and this is the best part, you get an exclusive New Yorker tote bag, which I have and I use to carry around all my fancy stuff. You can go to The New Yorker uh, at newyorker.com slash hive. That's New Yorker, all one word, dot com slash H-I-V-E. Listeners will save 50% when they enter the code hive. You get 12 weeks for just $6. You get home delivery of the print edition, unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every single day. You can get access to their apps, online archive, crossword puzzles. Once again, newyorker.com slash hive. Okay, um, we only have a, a little uh, ten minutes left, but I have I have a few more questions for you, um, I, and I want to jump to the Mueller report. Um, so, what is it that you're hearing, and what is it that we can expect? Is this going to be, you know, there are some people out there that are saying, oh, it's you know, it's going to be so redacted by the Department of Justice that you won't actually, we won't know anything. Um, there are some people out there saying it's going to be a, a massive bombshell. Um, what is it that we're hearing that's actually going to happen as a result of this thing? Well, you know, we're hearing mixed things. You know, we saw in the confirmation hearing the other day with um, uh, William Barr, Trump's nominee to be attorney general, he basically said that, you know, Mueller will deliver his report to him and, and Barr is under no obligation to release, you know, he will release a summary, an executive summary, but he's under no obligation to release the underlying report. Um, that said, you know, Congress has oversight and what this report is, is, you know, Trump, because Trump's president, he has, uh, immunity, uh, from any kind of criminal prosecution, but this report could provide, you know, the underlying, uh, predicate for, uh, for an impeachment. So, you know, I think obviously as, as citizens and as you and I, as, as, as journalists want to see every sentence that's in that report. But the only thing the report um, has to provide uh, is enough uh, for Congress to uh, introduce articles of impeachment uh, to then have a trial in the, in the Senate, um, which would then air, you know, presumably um, as much of the non-classified evidence as, as, they, uh, as they could. Um, and, you know, again, there's, there's all sorts of scenarios in which the Democratic-controlled House could subpoena uh, could subpoena Mueller, and you know I'm not um, an expert on congressional procedure, but I just have to think that uh, in in this you know hyper partisan age that there will be enough outrage on the left to make sure that whatever Mueller has uncovered will you know see see the light of day. Uh, it may not be, you know, overnight that he delivers his report to justice and it, you know, is immediately in the Washington Post, the New York Times the next morning. But there will be, you know, a, a groundswell of political opposition to make sure that Mueller's report, report, um, you know, has uh, uh, exposure, you know, to Congress and ultimately the, you know, the public. Well, and even if, you know, the DOJ and the White House and whoever says, you know, this tries to keep it under wraps, there's no scenario in which the Democrats don't leak it, right? Yeah. I mean, again, yes, you know, because of the oversight power, if, uh, you know, the committees, uh, the, you know, House Oversight Committee or uh, the uh, uh, Judiciary Committee, um, you know, um, Jerry Nadler could, you know, subpoena. Uh, the report and yes, yeah, Democratic staff members could leak it. Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, once once a document is set uh, set down, you know, it, unless you know, um, it's it's just you know, it's this is not a CIA operation. You know, everyone yeah. in America, everyone in America knows that this report is being produced. So, um, you know, presumably, if there is some try to if, if Trump does try to you know wrangle some cover up to to prevent it from being uh, you know made public. I think it's ultimately it's going to be impossible to do that. So you mentioned the word impeach, uh, impeachment, um, and there's a, a the cover story for um, the Atlantic this uh, this week is a, a giant blue cover with giant red words that literally say the word impeach, and um, it's an article written by uh, senior editor Yoni Applebaum who who says essentially that it's time now for Congress to rein in the president. Uh, who is in- 
who is clearly undermining American ideals, and you know, I don't think anyone would argue with that. Uh, and um, but and there's been you know Nancy Pelosi said that you know uh, didn't say that she wouldn't uh, do it um, if if it if necessary um, last month. Do you think that? But so you have that on one side, but on on the other side, you you know, as you said earlier in this podcast, there's no way in which the Republicans, I mean, the Republicans won't even turn on Trump for things that they grossly disagree with, including the government shutdown over a stupid wall that isn't going to do a goddamn thing. Um, is, is there any world in which any Republicans get behind uh, the Democrats in an impeachment process? Um, I, I'd like to think there is the idealist to me, but the, the sort of realist knows that uh, this Republican Party has has sold out any you know, principles, uh, to it's, but again, as I said earlier, it's a cult of personality of this, you know, uh, realist failed real estate mogul. So, um, I think the issue is, you know, a couple of things. One, what, what does Mueller actually have, you know, as much as we've read the tea leaves and we, you know, we think it looks bad, you know, we don't know the full scope of what he has. So if this report comes down the line and it is like, you know, to the to the level of Trump. Basically, Trump is you know on the phone with Putin saying, "Yeah, like you know, hacker emails." You know, then I think you have Republicans who are up for re-election in twenty, um, maybe uh, especially in kind of purple states, would have the political um, uh, reason to want to you know actually you know have a, a real trial in the Senate, but. You know, I again, I, I just think you, as you pointed out, it's th- this party. They disagree with him on so many issues uh, that, whether from trade to you know Syria um, to even you know immigration. Um, you know, the hardcore base of the party wants to limit immigration, but you know, you had um, uh, the the GOP back in 2012 writing a report saying you know they need to find ways to reach out to. Uh, Hispanic and other uh, minority communities. So, you know, I, I think that ship has sailed. Um, and I think just going real quickly back to Pelosi's view of impeachment, I think she's been really smart on this on this front. Again, this whole idea of her kind of playing the, the resident grown-up in the room, um, as much as that phrase is, is overused in the Trump era, by not kind of being um, rabid for impeachment and, 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 you know, leading that parade, by, uh, by kind of letting the that that whole conversation be driven by underlying facts and and you know the base of the party clearly is agitating for impeachment but she's kind of holding back and letting Mueller do his thing so that then um, you know when that report lands she's in a much stronger position to make it look like she's acting in the interests of the country and not just the party all right let's move uh, very briefly to the last part of this podcast which is going to be 2020 um, uh, I am uh, in the belief that Cardi B is going to be the Democratic nominee and uh, did you see her video she was fucking amazing um, no I need I need to see that oh it's amazing you got to watch Cardi B has a, a one minute Instagram video where she um, she literally just uh, rips into Trump and his policies in a, a very poetic way. Um, and uh, it was funny yesterday, a lot of senators were, were tweeting at each other saying, should I retweet this? Because it's a little profane. And it's also it's also Cardi B, who you've, there's more videos of her butt online than there are of her singing. And um, but it's uh, it, uh, the, the, so the question I have is, and this is a question you know, I'm sure you're asked all the time, but do you think that Trump will win 2020? Um, you know, I I go back and forth. I think the, um, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, the, the bottom line is I don't want to predict because any political pr- prediction as much as, you know, it's fun to to do it. It's just, I think we've all, after 2016 and the kind of the black swan nature of Trump beating Hillary, made any kind of political punditry or prognostic future looking political punditry just looks, you know, completely stupid. Um, but, you know, having said that, I, I think the left, as much as all of us here in New York, and I'm sure your your community in LA, you know, in this bubble that, that, that Trump, you know, is um, completely unfit to govern. And of course, this was just a, a one-time um, 
uh, fuck up that you know America you know p- picked this picked this president. I think you know that that underestimates both Trump's um, uh, strengths as a campaigner and the Democratic Party's just sort of historical ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, so <laughs> I think I think I guess I would say I am um, I am uh, I think Mueller. You know, it ultimately comes down to Mueller. You know, if Mueller comes up with uh, a, an, enough uh, evidence that just you know makes Trump completely toxic and um, and railroads him out of office. That's you know that will answer that question. But that said, if it's a wash and you know and Mueller comes up with you know some bad stuff, but enough for Trump to say that this was an overhyped witch hunt hoax um, that you know that has been cooked up by the deep state, I think you know the Democrats would be really foolish to think that um, that it's going to be um, uh, an easy election in twenty, especially because you know we did see you know the 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 blue wave in 18. But the way the Electoral College works, um, yeah, I mean, Trump is down in states like Michigan and um, and Wisconsin, but, you know, he's holding pretty strong in Pennsylvania and just our, our, our dysfunctional, you know, sort of illiberal, undemocratic Electoral College system gives so much weight to, to the lower population states um, that are, you know, in the sort of definitely in 2016 went to Trump. So, um, I guess I would say it's it's uh, it is more you know it's it's more likely than Democrats would um, like to admit that Trump gets reelected in twenty. I'll kind of leave it there. I'm ready to vomit right now. Um, all right, so for, for the 2020 candidates, I mean, just in the last week alone, you had you know uh, Senator Kristen Gillibrand of New York uh, tell Stephen Colbert that she was launching an exploratory committee to run for president. You had um, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio announcing on MSNBC that he was going on tour for four states to to, to check things out. Uh, you've got, you know, uh, Julianne Castro, the former HUD secretary. You've got, I mean, it just keeps going. Hawaii, Minnesota, all these senators and former government officials that are announcing that they are either running or exploring running or exploring, exploring. Um, y- y- who Who's going to kind of, who can stand up to this guy? You know, that's what uh, you know. Joe Biden is asking that question, and he's you know, as as Vanity Fair and others have reported, um, he is um, you know making the argument that he is the best equipped, kind of being the elder statesman of the party, and you know, a blue collar, um, sort of blue collar Joe who can appeal to the Trump voters. Um, but you know, my fear is um, you know is that the Democratic Party is going to nominate someone so far to the left um, that Trump is going to be able to sort of scare. Um, you know, the sort of the blue collar white voters who voted for him last time that, you know, this is again, a a party that wants to, you know, take from white people and give to brown people, which is the same racist argument um, that, you know, he made in 2016. And, you know, scarily enough in America, that was effective. Um, So, you know, I think the, the Democratic Party is like we were just talking about this civil war. Uh, It seems like, you know, from all the candidates that have declared, you know, we saw Gillibrand say that she wants Medicare for all and, and you know, policies like that. Um, the party is clearly moving left. And, um, uh, you know, that I think it's too early to tell. But, you know, the, the danger is that it, it creates enough sort of space in the middle for Trump to um, to kind of, you know, prevent them, those voters from from flipping um uh, from where they were in 2016. So, you know, that's, that's the question, you know, to your, to your point about like which candidates are declaring, you know, can take on this guy. I mean, I think this is clearly another consequence of a party that has no leader. So it's going to be a free for all, a jump ball with, you know, 50 people scrambling for the nomination. And, you know, maybe there's somebody out there, you know, I'm trying to remember back in, in, 08, when Obama declared, um, you know, no one had really been talking about him until, yeah. you know, so there may be someone out there, uh, whether it's Beto or, or others who, who was not part of the conversation um, until the last few months. All right. So, so the last question, and this is one that we don't normally ask because we're too busy focusing on Trump, which is insane because that's all we've done for the last three and a half years. But 
Put aside who can beat him, who do you actually think would be the best president to take over the White House next? Oh, like actual person or what? Yeah, like the person what? who who would I think be the best for the country? You know, I think we need someone. Uh, you know, putting per, you know specific personalities aside, I think we we need somebody that can re- the, restore. Uh, uh, Faith in institutions. I think that you know the long-term damage, you know, from the the, the short-term damage of Trump is just the day-to-day chaos and dysfunction and the shutdown and all that. The, the long-term damage beyond like climate change, which you know is probably going to you know end all of us uh, in our in our lifetime, um, is um, the long-term damage that Trump is, has has enacted is um, you know basically this sense that tr- you know objective reality and truth is relative. And facts are things to be debated, and so regardless of party, um, I think the the my biggest hope for um, our political system, whether it's in twenty or twenty twenty four, is a sense that we can you know what's the the, the cliche, Patrick Daniel Patrick Moynihan quote you know you're entitled to your own opinions but not your own facts that we can at least return our our politics to to a reality based. Um, terrain and that we someone who believes in institutions um you know believes that lying has consequences uh, and all of that you know that said do i think that will happen you know maybe not you know this this genie has been let out of the bottle uh and as you've written so much about just the destructive um effects of platforms and social media you know i just don't uh i i don't i don't see how we return to a political system and a media system where there are objective facts and we can all kind of debate uh issues but we're all kind of agreeing on what those issues are yep completely from uh from your mouth to donald trump's ears uh (laughs) not that he's listening but yes yeah exactly um all right so gabe sherman thank you so much for uh taking the time today this has been fascinating uh i'm going to be sitting around with bated breath waiting for this report to come out, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, because I don't think I can handle much more of this. Um, and uh, thanks a lot for, for taking the time today. Thanks for having me and stay dry on the rare rainy LA day. I know, the one time of the year that it rains. All right, we'll talk soon. Great, thanks. Thanks to my guest this week, Gabe Sherman. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I am sure that you did, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their incredible, amazing production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Blinklist and The New Yorker magazine. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.